We're at an exciting time in the mobility sector, with new technology causing us to continually question the way that we move both goods and people. My job is to talk to the individuals leading this revolution and to investigate the challenges and opportunities we face as we develop safer and more sustainable mobility. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating. Today I'm joined by Trevor Paul, who has the awesome title of Chief Mobility Officer for the State of Michigan. We talked about what that means as well as Trevor's role in leading the newly created Office of Future Mobility and Electrification. If you follow what's going on in the mobility world or in the state of Michigan, then you've more than likely seen some of the exciting announcements that have come from Trevor's office over the past few weeks. Not the least, which includes the announcement of a brand new autonomous Cavenue connecting Ann Arbor and Detroit. We talked in detail about this project as well as several of the other areas Trevor is focusing on as he seeks to assure that Michigan remains a leader in the future mobility space. Please enjoy my conversation with Trevor Paul. Today I'm joined by Trevor Paul. Trevor, appreciate having you on. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, can you please start by kind of introducing yourself and, and sharing what you're working on? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, it's, it's pretty awesome to, to be on the show. Um, so uh, my name again is Trevor Paul. I'm the Chief Mobility Officer for the state of Michigan. And as part of that role, I'm starting up the governor's new office of future mobility and electrification. Um, so we fundamentally believe that the next 10 years will be a landmark decade for mobility. Electric vehicles are expected to pass internal combustion engine vehicle sales by 2030. Software will represent over 50% of the value of a vehicle by 2030. Autonomous vehicles are expected to take off in the late 2020s with over 50% of new vehicle production being above level two or partially autonomous. So much is going to happen in the next 10 years. And we believe that um, the future is not just, you know, something future leaders walk into. It's something that today's creator or leaders create. And um, the, the future will belong to the state that prepares for it best. So when you think about mobility and, and Michigan's leadership position, we felt that that was important of a focus enough to create this office, being a dedicated resource to mm-hmm. all things mobility, not just automotive, but um, mobility by airland, space and sea. We believe the future is going to be multimodal. Um, and so now it's really taking this office, um, establishing it over the next couple of months. We're about two months in um, and, and then really focusing on strategic policy and then also dynamic programming that helps our companies grow in the state of Michigan. And how, how different is it compared to, so I know MEDC and, and Planet M and a couple other and organization and brand have been doing what I perceive to be similar work. How different is it now that this office has been built and kind of what, what are you focusing on? Yeah, so the office itself, um, because it was created through an executive order from the governor, um, will wrap in a lot of these other state efforts. So Planet M now is part of the Office of Future Mobility and Electrification, the Council on Future Mobility, which is a, a policy recommending tool where industry uh, economic developers, legislators got together to provide updates to our autonomous vehicle laws. Um, that council will now be part of the office. And essentially, the, the office will live uh, between four different state agencies, um, the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, which will focus on, you know, economic development and mobility um, in the state, uh, attracting mobility companies, MDOT, which will focus on infrastructure the new Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes uh, and Energy, which will focus on the grid and charging infrastructure. 
and then the Department of Labor and Economic Opportunity, which will focus on talent. So I know that that does seem a little bit complicated, but the idea is this office is part of those four state departments and hits on four very core parts of, of mobility growth in the state, economic development, infrastructure, uh, the grid, and workforce. When you think of so the state of Michigan and then the role in kind of developing future mobility, are, are there any throughout the world, are there any cities that you look at as kind of a, a role model or certain aspects of what different cities or, or places are doing that seems interesting or that stand out? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I, I think right now, I, I think Texas is really strong. Um, I, I see that, and you've probably seen too, mm -hmm. where companies test, they invest. And uh, what Texas has been able to do um, with, for instance, Aurora uh, and their work in autonomous trucking to Simple, their work in autonomous trucking with Waymo and, and the commercial delivery vehicles, obviously the Tesla win. Texas is doing a lot of things right. Um, and, and frankly, there's some other states in the Southwest too that are taking this, if you test, you'll probably invest approach. Um, and I also think like when it comes to innovation and, and the future of multimodal, some of the things that are being done in Scandinavia and Europe around like wireless charging in motion, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, but that said, I would like to think that, you know, you talk to Texas or you talk to, you know, a place in Europe and they're like, you know, we really are looking up to what Michigan is doing right now. Mm -hmm. We've got some pretty big announcements over the last month um, and, and there'll be more coming soon. Um, so I, yeah, I'd like to think there's, I mean, if you look at all the different aspects of building future mobility, there's certain people who are doing exciting things in, in different areas. And yeah, it, and let, let's actually talk there. You talk about some of these announcements that have come out in the last few months and feel feel, feel free to expand that the one that's really uh, caught my attention, I know a lot of people's attention is this kind of autonomous corridor between Ann Arbor and Detroit that was announced uh, coming out sometime in the next couple of years. Can you speak to what that is and you know, why that was selected as, a, as an interesting option for the next couple of years? Yeah, so we're building the road of the future in Michigan, and it's going to be the first of its kind in the world. Uh, it's going to be a self-driving vehicle corridor between downtown Detroit and the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Um, the, the route, while it's still being determined, will most likely uh, go down Michigan Avenue and, and touch Michigan Central Station and all the investment that Ford has going on there, ultimately uh, move through Dearborn, heading west, uh, ultimately hit our airport, uh, DTW, and then continue on um, to, to Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti, uh, will probably be a part of it as well. And the idea there is, is to, uh, yes, uh, bring, pull forward some of those technologies that currently the public hasn't really been exposed to, but really could help change their lives. But in, in doing so for, for us as a state, I mean, we're looking at leveraging innovation, not just tech for tech's sake. Uh, we're leveraging innovation because we believe it'll improve access to equitable transport, more equitable transportation, safer transportation, more environmentally conscious transportation. Um, so, so this lane, this dedicated lane will, I, I think be able to, improve existing public transit options regionally, while also pushing the envelope 
uh, on, on new sorts of technologies that could go to a place like Texas or Europe to, to be deployed. But now there, there's a real playing field here, uh, or a lane, I guess should, I should say, to bring it to Michigan. So we're excited about it, and uh, now the work begins, the fun begins. Yeah, and can you speak a bit about kind of economic viability? So as you mentioned, I mean, there's a lot of great, great work going on in the development of, say, automated and connected vehicles, which could theoretically be just yeah, creating tech because it's cool tech to be created. But as I think of, I know uh, you guys have been doing a lot with May Mobility. That's a very interesting um, use case. I interviewed Ed Olson, their CEO, a couple, yeah. couple uh, weeks ago. And then also now this autonomous lane, it, it's, it becomes easier to think about viable economic models of having a shuttle that's able to use one of these lanes um, and transport people, whether it's from Detroit to the airport or from Ann Arbor downtown for the weekend and things like that. How, and yeah, r rambling questions with a lot of parts, but how do you, how do you think of kind of enabling or making sure that there is kind of this economic viability for the solutions that you're, you're helping to introduce um, in Michigan? Yeah, so it, that's a great question. So phase one, uh, which began with the announcement two weeks ago from our governor and Bill Ford, um, phase one will be very much a co-creation process with the communities that'll be impacted by this corridor and also bringing in other, other OEMs, other automakers. This is gonna be an automaker neutral lane, it's a public lane. Um, and then also like as we're doing that, have tough policy conversations, um, have tough uh, roadway design conversations. I'll, I'll give you examples of those. So Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners is, is funding the upfront cost of this road so that the road isn't gonna be something Michigan tax dollars pay for, which is a part of the appeal. In return, um, Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners wants to leverage this corridor, Cavenue is what it's called, mm -hmm. um, to look at new business models for, for funding the road of the future, other roads of the future, or other sorts of autonomous vehicle models um, that involve shared mobility um, and even the future of electrification. So looking at, okay, how do we, how do we use this project as a reason to look at creative, creative models for like building the roads that we have in our state over the, the 28,000 miles of roads we have in our state over the next couple of years. Um, that goes from what we put in, in the pavement to make it last longer, uh, mm -hmm. how, we, how we install things like wireless charging or sensors into the pavement, um, signs, barriers, and, and even some of the more high-tech uses uh, of, of data, or not high-tech uses, but some of the, the data that we're gonna be pulling off of, of high-tech hardware, and what if the, the hardware goes down? How, does it, how is it maintained? Um, all of these different tough questions are things that we're gonna consider. Um, and then the other piece of it is like the use cases of this road. So, for instance, what if there's a barrier at, at a point in the route for safety reasons, but an ambulance needs to pull over to the side of the road. Let's say the lane is along the sidewalk. Or a small business needs to get a delivery vehicle in front of its store to drop something off. So those are the sorts of things that we're gonna have to think about as well. Um, so I, I know I gave you kind of a long, <laughs> I gave you a long rambling answer to your, um, to the question you thought was long and rambling. Sure. But the idea there is really to involve the community in roadway design 
involve policymakers in policy for the quarter, whether it's tolling or whether it's some other curbside monetization, ways to fund this thing so it, it lasts um, and doesn't go away or is, doesn't have the impact we intended. And then to look at each and every corner, each and every inter intersection to make sure that we're not disrupting anything uh, and it actually makes lives better. Gotcha. And how do you think, so just slightly, slightly changing topics, but how do, how do you think about the risk or making the decision about the risk of having automated vehicles on the road? And, and you, you touch on where people test, they invest, right? So as, as a state, it makes sense to allow automakers and, and OEMs and different companies to be doing some of this testing and, and driving on the road, but at the same time, it theoretically presents a, a, uh, a safety rate situation, depending on how early you're letting them uh, on the road. How, how do you guys think about that balance? Yeah, so there was a study out um, recently that had said deploying highly automated vehicles and smart infrastructure that's just 10% safer for the average human will save more lives than waiting until it's 75% safer. Um, which means that if you're able to narrow down the variables that as a self-driving vehicle uh, has in front of it or beside it or in back of it, um, then, then you begin to create this uh, acceptance level or you, you begin to limit the liability as you're creating an acceptance level for the user. Um, and that, that's kind of what we're thinking is going to happen here. So it's not going to be a lane that is like any other lane where it's paved. Um, and I know I'm going back to the corridor, but I, I think that's a good manifestation of, of how we think about this. Um, the lane will have different levels of, of autonomy. Uh, for instance, public transit's a very predictable operation mm -hmm. that you can start with. Uh, where I think in mobility of goods, freight trucks, delivery trucks, there's a certain consistency there. Um, but when you get into like autonomous vehicle, passenger vehicles, there's less consistency. So we're, we're kind of looking at, okay, what, what are the safest use cases right now for this project and any other project around the state? How can we create moments for those use cases to be established, whether it's you know, through our office seeding investment through grants, and then that paving the way for private investment, um, or, or maybe it's another mechanism, but how do we unlock the potential to improve Michigan lives right now through this technology? That, that's kind of how we're looking at it. Gotcha, and you, you touched on kind of the different modes that'll be driving on that, that corridor, and corridor, and it makes me think like, even if you have a, a safe and well-developed, well say a highway, highway pilot uh, maneuver, often the greatest variable is the drivers around the vehicle right? And the erratic behavior of human drivers um, swerving in and out of traffic and things like that. And I guess theoretically that's uh, eliminated or, or very much reduced in something like this dedicated corridor, right? Yeah. I mean, the numbers are simple. I mean, there have been almost 10,000 fatal car crashes in Michigan in the last decade. 94% are attributed to human error. Um, and deploying smart infrastructure and highly automated vehicles could reduce accidents up to 90, 90%. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. And uh, this is a, a, a pretty big test case for us to show why this investment matters. Um, and again, it's not tech for tech's sake. Cool. And so let's transition a bit to more of urban type applications. Yep. So what, 
I guess what what role do you have in so you mentioned multimodal transportation that you can think of all the different ways that people can get around within a city whether it's private use vehicles whether it's using something like lime scooters right or ride hailing um yeah shared vehicles whether it's public transportation by buses shuttle light rail etc what what rail or what role does your office have in in trying to develop say the city of detroit or 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 otherwise as kind of a a future forward and a, a very highly effective city for the movement of people mm -hmm. um so one of our guiding principles is is that a systems level approach is what's going to unlock economic development advantages and allow michigan to compete globally mm -hmm. how people and goods move is not isolated to one mode um simply being the best at scooters or the best at autonomous cars or the best at micro mobility is too narrow of a win to claim global leadership yeah so we believe all of it's linked um and i i think it's it's important for this office as, as sort of this uh, entity within state government to, that sort of brings all these other efforts regionally or statewide under one common vision that we um, embrace what's already there and begin to tie in uh, new, new opportunities where they make sense. So I'll give you an example, like shared mobility, micro mobility, uh, ride sharing, uh, all of these things have come under attack in the last couple of months with the pandemic. And frankly, even before that, ride-sharing, ride-sharing platforms was, was suffering a little bit um, because what was happening is these companies were trying to sell into cities and cities weren't interested. Um, mm -hmm. Or just there wasn't enough consumer adoption for these things. However, now you see what Uber is doing, just integrating into the basic public transit applications that people have. And, and that's really catching on, especially now when, you know, people maybe aren't as uh, comfortable taking a bus to work every day or to the grocery store or to a doctor's appointment. Um, and so I think this office needs to be a uh, technology activator that leverages grants, that leverages um, the connections that can be made by a third party like a state government um, that allows cities to sort of better express the, the transit issues that they're having or the mobility issues that they're having. Mm -hmm. And then incumbent upon this office, and we're building systems to do this right now, to then find the right solution providers, whether those providers are in Ann Arbor, Traverse City, or even Silicon Valley or Israel, bringing those, those companies to the table uh, to, to assist. Um, whether it, it's like, some sort of pod in a city, or maybe it's something a bit more vast. Maybe it's something revolving autonomous or involving autonomous trucking. Uh, I think it's our job to stitch everything together and build those use cases locally. And then ultimately inventory those solution providers that we're talking to all around the world to then sort of match make, if you will, our principal function of this office will be to match make um, and then to seed those matches. Uh, through grant dollars, but then also to come in over top with very strategic policy recommendations to um, encourage a favorable environment, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's how we use our sidewalks, how we use our curbs, or maybe even it's something larger than statewide, such as how we handle cybersecurity or what we, we believe um, testing needs in order for Michigan to be competitive. Like, is it enough? Is our autonomous vehicle laws enough 
um, from 2016 to matter. And, and that's also a role that this office will play. Cool. And thinking about then the kind of what success looks like and then the objectives. So you had, you had said earlier in this conversation, I think you used the word safe, equitable, and sustainable for, for mobility. And at least from my perspective, safe and sustainable, uh, certainly, I mean, I think if you listen, if anyone's listened to the podcast, like those, those are two topics that I've been kind of hammering that I, I personally feel I've been spending a lot of focus, but I think I've, I've missed some of the, the equitable part. And now that when you're, when you're bringing it up it, is a very interesting point that, that can't be overlooked. Can, can you speak to, you know, what, what you mean when you use that word equitable and what we can do to get closer in that direction? Yeah, sure. So the, the future of mobility, it should allow communities to be safer, greener, more productive, but it should also uphold a person's dignity. Um, there are communities that have natural mobility barriers. Um, there, there are communities that are lower income that can't afford to buy and maintain a car for themselves. Mm-hmm. And they're working harder than anyone, but they just can't afford it based on the situation that they've developed. Or public transit isn't consistent. Um, or they have to walk miles upon miles to even access public transit. Um, they, they don't, in many ways, have the same shot to be successful uh, moving around the town they love as others. And this very much, this sort of growing industry that we have around self-driving vehicles, around a sort of a multimodal future where there's more options for more people, um, this is a, a chance to right some of those wrongs that some of these people had nothing to do with. It's just the hand they've been dealt. Um, and you know what? It's not just it's not issues of, of just geography. I mean, you look at like what, what we have in terms of like senior citizen transfer to doctor's appointments, to anywhere they need to go. The options aren't great in a lot of areas. So one of the things that we, we did recently was we leveraged an autonomous vehicle uh, to transfer senior citizens and other uh, folks in, in sort of vulnerable communities, patients to and from their doctor's appointments at the Detroit Medical Center. So it's this Navia shuttle. Navia is an autonomous uh, shuttle provider. Uh, mm-hmm. We partner with DTE, Flagstar, the, I mentioned the Detroit Medical Center, uh, MDOT, to run a pilot of, of this particular shuttle to, to see how it can impact um, you know, the health of these folks because it's just easier to get to the doctors if, if you have a problem. Um, and and th- that anxiety that these folks may have had goes away, uh, you know, the basic how do I even get there to see if I'm healthy? That, that question goes away. And so we announced that last week and, and hopefully it'll be something that sticks around for a while. Awesome. That's it. It's, it's cool to hear that there's focus place there and it, it certainly makes a lot of sense and is a, uh, seems like a worthwhile kind of uh, venture there. Um, one to quickly change to speaking about electrification. So in my mind, electrification, the development of electrified vehicles of, of various forms, including battery electric vehicles, is a, a lot further along than, say, this connected and automated vehicle development. And, yeah. and as such, maybe there isn't as much that, that needs to be done, kind of like these early um, laying out the, the use cases and matchmaking and finding ways to, to come with solutions or come to solutions and things like that. So can you speak to, uh, on the electrification front, 
what you see the office's role or where are the places that you're focused there? Yeah, sure. So there really are two streams. Um, when we think accelerating EV adoption is a, a core pillar to what, what this office will do. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I, again, break it down into sort of dynamic programming and really strategic policies. So uh, with programming, right now, Michigan only has about 11% of the EV production industry in North America, and that's expected to fall to 8%. Um, that, I mean, given where we are in the industry as a state and as a, as a region, that, that's, not, that's not acceptable. So what can we do to develop um, more strategic business incentive programs or uh, financing tools to get more of these EV companies here in Michigan or those that are here, help them grow here and, and not uh, have them leave and go to other places? Um, and then also like beyond sort of expanding charging infrastructure as we need to, to just be competitive with just any other state, how can we create these leapfrog moments, uh, chances to try new technology that's never been tried before in North America um, to show sort of the power of Michigan to take something from mind to market and then have it impact people's lives in a meaningful way um, and sort of opening up our roads to more testing, not only as it relates to autonomous vehicles, but as it relates to electric vehicle charging. I mentioned earlier wireless charging um, in motion, I, you know, leveraging EVs for storing and adding locally produced electricity to the grid, maybe even looking at concepts around electric avenues uh, with real-time wireless electrification systems that combine dynamics, semi-dynamic and static charging. Um, but then the second lever there, I, I, those are all sort of programming ideas to stimulate the industry. And I think you also have to look right now at policy. What are we doing or not doing to uh, reduce range anxiety for those that do have EVs or are considering purchasing them or businesses that are considering, you know, switching over their fleets. So looking at interstate partnerships, like there are some really great ones out West, like the Mountain West states have one where you can literally drive from Boise to Albuquerque. Um, and have great consistency between charging locations and the entire charging experience. Why can't we do something like that in the Midwest? Uh, we have an amazing advantage with a, a border. Um, so could we do something with Ontario uh, along the, the sort of the, the line from Chicago to Toronto, which Michigan plays a, a pivotal role in just by virtue of where it's located. Yeah. Um, but then in state, you know, how do we, how do we increase the number of charging stations? A, a couple weeks ago, the state announced 30 new DC fast charging stations, and that's part of a larger plan to get to 300 in a couple years. Um, and then how do we sort of streamline things like EV permitting and installation um, to accelerate adoption? How do, how do we, you know, like for instance, help with charger placement on state properties and also federal properties? Um, we should be leading by example. And then also like looking at state public sector procurement guidelines that are very sort of price conscious, which immediately eliminates EVs. What are some things that we can do to begin to introduce EVs into those lineups? Um, so that, that's our approach over the next couple of years, uh, this blend of programming and policy. And we talk a lot about EVs. I, I, I presume battery uh, electric vehicles. Is there... Is there much focus or attention paid to fuel cell electric vehicles at this point, or is it primarily the focus on, on more battery electric? Um, that's a good question. I, I think it's more on battery electric because the industry is really handling the fuel cell conversation effectively. 
I, I think the battery conversation is one that the public sector still needs to create the environment for. <laughs> and yeah, I guess we're more used to electrical, electric grids, right, coming as kind of a public utility as opposed to gas routing, which is kind of more the, the model that hydrogen's going, which is more of a, a private type endeavor, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and so I, one last uh, topic I wanted to touch on and then a couple of like rapid fire questions for you, but um, talking about the workforce and competing. So, so I, I grew up in, in Michigan, right? Went to U of M, uh, left the state for a couple of years afterwards and came back and now, now I'm working in the area. Um, I, I know I've, I've seen a lot of friends that there, there's a lot of opportunities that in, in potentially different areas. And as I'm, I'm sure, you know, they had a lot of competition for, for talent in, in, in this mobility sector. How, how do you guys think, or I guess, first of all, what are the biggest challenges that you see for the state of Michigan? And then second, kind of what are you, what are you guys trying to do to combat those challenges? Yeah, so there was a, a report that came out by Boston Consulting Group and the Michigan Mobility Institute that, Institute that said nationally, mobility industry will need about 45,000 new people with computer-related engineering skills by 2030. Michigan will need about 12,000 of those to retain its whole position as a global mobility leader. I mean, so to answer your, for the last part of your question, homegrown talent must be retained, and that needs to be our focus. Uh, Michigan continues to graduate more tech professionals than it adds new tech jobs. Um, so we're, we're graduating some great folks are just not staying. And, and the effort uh, to keep them can't just be business, can't just be university, can't just be government. It has to be all three working to upgrade curriculums and also working on more effective corporate credentialing programs. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the other aspect, though, to, to pay attention to here um, is that startups enrich R&D environments, right? And Michigan is the second highest receiver of VC funds to mobility and electrification startups, which means we are, there are innovative companies in this state um, that are getting, getting increasingly funded to grow here or anywhere else in the world. But that's still just the 10th of California. So there's always going to be that threat of companies leaving. Um, but here's the, here's the real kicker that I think we got to get better at. I 100% believe in our hardware advantage. And that's something that Michigan can tout anywhere in the world and we need to continue to grow. But unlike other regions, 94% of our VC funds to mobility startups in Michigan are for hardware, and only 6% in software. What's happening is these software startup founders are getting educated here, but then they take their ideas elsewhere to get funds. And that's the gap that I think we really need to focus on is, okay, you know, beyond just sort of creating and filling jobs, um, what are we doing to attract the founders that will create jobs specifically in areas that maybe we haven't been as strong or as prevalent, such as software in the past. Um, and, and it shows that, I mean, you, you, you may say, well, these startups, they don't create that many jobs compared to the OEMs and tier ones. And that's absolutely right. Um, but mobility related startups have a larger job creation impact in Michigan than they do nationally. Um, so it, to me, it's an, an increasing and important part of, of what we do here. I mean, why can't the next billion dollar company start in Michigan? Well, that company would start by being a startup and hiring one and two and 10 and 50 and 100 and ultimately thousands of people. And we need to start, start with companies at that age. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Cool, so like I said, wanna just uh, close three rapid fire questions for you, kind of more focused on, on you personally. 
Um, so the first one, do you have any particular book or books that you've read that have had a, uh, a particular impact on you and, and either your personal or professional career? I, there hasn't been a ton of time to read books from yeah. cover to cover. You, you wouldn't uh, be the first person to say just I, I don't <laughs> read a ton. I, I know uh, there's a lot of articles and online stuff. Yeah. I, you know, I, I would say that uh, podcasts have been a source for me because it's just well, before the pandemic I used to drive a lot. Um, specifically, like Throughline, okay. Indicator by Planet Money, TED Radio Hour, uh, TED Talks. I mean, I think those are breaks for me to realize how creative this industry has a chance to be. Um, and it, it allows me also to get a gauge as to, you know, okay, here's where we are, but historically, here's what we've done. Like Throughline is a history podcast, but it ties different events from the past to the present in a meaningful way that also converges sort of economic conversations and business conversations with some of the social conversations. Um, so, I, you know, that, that to me has been uh, helpful as I, as I think about framing this office and framing the mobility industry in the state. Cool. And so, so next, uh, I mean, if you, you mentioned there's not a ton of time to, to read, maybe not a ton of time for, for hobbies, which is the second question, but when you're not working and I mean, it's potentially if you want, want to take the COVID uh, situation out, out, out of the question, what, what's something that you like to do on the side or what do you enjoy doing? Yeah. Well, I, I have a seven-month-old, um, so just hanging out with him. Uh, he's a smiley guy, uh, just enjoying enjoying this phase of, yeah. of his life has been pretty awesome. Um, you know, I run, golf, cook. I mean, it's normal, normal yeah. stuff. It used to be travel, but not, not so much anymore. But hopefully, we'll get back to that. Nice. I have uh, my, my wife's pregnant and expecting to get in, uh, in, a, in a few months, so I'm, I'm looking forward to... Uh, to those stages for sure wow yeah no you'll love them it's, yeah. well i mean it'll be tough but you'll love them and they'll move very fast i know and now i'm sounding like every other person that gave me advice and i was like yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it happens and once you're a dad all you can do is give advice yep uh, understood and then the, the last one so i i'm a believer that uh a lot of the impact that we do and a lot of the things that that we where we're able to make a, a big impact in the world come from leveraging our strengths and and realizing the things that we do well and kind of building off of those. So I guess the question for you, when you think of yourself and the things that you've been able to do so far, do you have any particular things that you think you, you do well or that other people around you would say that you do well that has enabled you to have the impact that you've had so far? Wow, that's a good question. It's a big question. Um, like it's better for maybe people around me to answer. Yeah, uh, yeah no, it's, it's tough talking about yourself. I, I, I know I have a hard time. <laughs> With that at I, all. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that um, I, I think when I set my mind to something or there's a problem out there that either makes me extremely upset or gives me hope if we can solve it, I, I, and this could be a detriment, I, I go 110% into it. Um, and I've, I've been told that that level of passion uh, for at least members of my team is infectious. Um, and I think the ability to, to sort of 
see a vision, but then find ways to execute that vision into like meaningful results. Like we knew we wanted to do something with the corridor, but then being able to find actually something to do with the corridor. Um, we knew we wanted to do something to help seniors in Detroit uh, to find that shuttle and be able to, you know, actually get it up and running. I think are examples of, of that. Uh, cool. I think in government, it can be really tough to, uh, it can be, things can be slow. Um, so you got to work a little extra harder to move fast. But um, when you do, you can really impact people. And, and that's kind of been my goal, even though it's, sometimes it's exhausting, is to move as fast as I can while I'm in government to help people. Nice. And so again, the last uh, open-ended two-parter question. So the first, is there any, any place you want to send people to if they can find you or learn more about the future of future, uh, uh, the Office of Future Mobility and Electrification? And then kind of the, the second part to that, um, if there's anything either that we didn't touch here or that you just want to want to leave us with, feel free to, the floor is yours. Yeah, sure. So you can visit planetm.com to learn a bit more about the office and the different things we have going on uh, as it relates to the future of mobility and what the state of Michigan is doing. Uh, if you're interested in the corridor project that I was discussing uh, this this call or this, this uh, episode, um, you can go to cavnu.com, that's C-A-V-N-U-E.com, and that gives a, a really nice sort of overview of the project. And then obviously always find me on LinkedIn and uh, any of the social channels. I'd love to connect to there. Cool. Well, thank you very much. This has been, it's, it's exciting. It's been exciting uh, seeing you in the, in the role. I'm excited about what's going to come out from the next uh, coming months and, and years. So thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time here, Trevor. Yeah, no, thanks for having me.